We were made for wholeness that can only be found in union with our Creator. But since the beginning, we have embarked on an endless quest to satiate our desires with a never-ending array of disordered loves. We have attached ourselves to pleasure and relationships and work, but they do not satisfy. What if the truth is that no created thing will ever fulfill us like the creator of all things can? No created thing can bear the weight of our deepest hopes or the weight of our soul's longings. Only one can do that. All the rest is counterfeit. Good morning, Element. So good to see your faces. This is a great view from up here. If you haven't done this, you should try it, just to see all your faces at once. It's a beautiful sight. So yeah, new series. And this will blow your mind a little bit. This is the last series before the Christmas series. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yep, it is. It's the last series before the Christmas series which uh, we're working on now, and that's going to be pretty special, I think. So maybe I'm biased. Um, so this series, we're going to be talking about this idea of counterfeits, right? And we'll do that by looking at the events before and after the Exodus, where the people of Israel uh, came out of Egypt. And we're going to follow their journey a little bit, at least a few episodes in that journey, and see what they learned about this idea of authentic presence versus counterfeit. And we, that's what we mean by counterfeit, right? Something that's less than the authentic, something that's less than the real thing. And when we're really honest, when we're really honest, we know a counterfeit when we see one. When we're really honest about it, we know one when we see one. You know, most counterfeiting of currency, of, of money, of bills, is used to be, anyway, pretty obvious. There were a few people that got really famous for being really great counterfeiters because they had an inside guy in the treasury, and they stole the, the equipment, and so they knew how to make a really great-looking counterfeit $20 bill. But most counterfeiting wasn't that great. It wasn't that great. In fact, if you really looked at a counterfeit $20 bill, for example, even one of us would be able to, to identify something that was off if we're really looking. But people would pass them off by putting them in between real bills, right? And just sliding them in there and using the counterfeit money in that way. And they're counting on the clerk or the bank or whoever sees that money to not really look, to not really look at that counterfeit money. Because that's what it takes to, to, to identify a counterfeit. We can all identify a counterfeit, but it takes awareness. It takes really seeing. It takes paying attention. So if you grew up like I did, you know about growing up with the generic brands. Anybody out there grow up with the generic brands? Yes. So uh, generic brands can be a great value. 
and they might equate to the real thing. You're welcome. <laughs> to, be, to get more points, I just came up with those on the spot. So just to be clear. So we were, you know, sort of poor growing up. Not poor, poor, but, you know, definitely not well-to-do. And so when we got new shoes, most of the time those new shoes were new-to-us shoes. And sometimes if they were actually new shoes, they were just shoes. There were no three stripes like these right here. There were no Nike swooshes on these shoes. They were just shoes. Sometimes just white shoes. And in the South, those are called tennis shoes. They're not called sneakers. So white tennis shoes, that's what we had. We had the Winn-Dixie brand, everybody. The Winn-Dixie brand, the Czech Cola. That's C-H-E-K, Czech Cola. Thrifty made, M-A-I-D, Thrifty made brand. Uh, the cookies from Winn-Dixie were called Big 60s because 60 of them came in a pack for 17 cents. I made that part up, but probably not far off, right? Big 60s. I had to shovel down the green beans at dinner to earn myself two Big 60s, big twoies. I got two of the Big 60s for the green beans. But um, every year uh, at our church, my dad was one of the pastors at, we would, uh, for our anniversary of, of him coming there, they would have a pounding. Do you know what that is? A pounding? Pound of this, pound of that. So everybody would essentially bring us groceries. And that night was always amazing because we would come home with all of these groceries and for one week of magic, we had the brand name food. Oh yes, we had Chef Boyardee ravioli in cans. That's not something Clara Neesmith buys on a regular basis. We had name brand Doritos. We had Kraft singles. Kraft singles. That's right. It was like we won the grocery lottery. It, it was. Like we had the real version, and it, and it tasted so much better. The fake Kraft cheese tasted better than the off-brand fake cheese. So we're, we're all, when we know that it's not the real thing, we know. When we're paying attention, we can identify the counterfeit. There's something in us that can tell, that knows that deep down that no counterfeit, that no idol that we can conjure, even if the idol is made of something good, will substitute what we were made for, what we were made for, which is union with a creator. So an idol is something we're putting before God. Most of us are pretty good on that definition, something you're putting before God. But as usual, I think there's something more to that. I think there's something deeper than that. Maybe there are reasons we seek out these counterfeit gods. And many of us have been taught that idolatry is a sin and the Ten Commandments would show that to be true, right? But I think maybe even most often, most 
idolatry that's going on has a lot less to do with someone shaking their fists at God, saying, I'm going to worship success, not you, and stick it to God. Um, and most of it is a place of disordered loves. Here's the quote from Augustine. He said, the essence of sin is disordered loves. We'll just let that sink in for a second. The essence of sin is disordered loves. So many of us are familiar with this Christian doctrine that we call the fall, right? The capital F, the, the fall, or the fall of man, um, which is the idea that, you know, when Adam committed the first sin and he ushered in, uh, sin into the world, which meant that there was disease and sin, and, and then death itself came into the world, right? That's, that's the doctrine. But I would like to perhaps reframe or turn that gem just a bit for the sake of this conversation about counterfeits. Perhaps another way to look at that fall would be to think about it as this, a separation, a separation that happened a separation. Think of um, a baby. It's in complete and utter union with its mother before it's born. Yes, complete and utter union with its mother. It is connected, directly connected to the source of life and sustenance and warmth and being. It is, in some sense, its mother. It's utterly dependent, but it's, but it's alive and it's flourishing. But then it's born. And to be born, there has to be breaking. Yes, mommies? There has to be breaking. A lot of things have to break. There has to be a lot of separation. There is blood. There are tears. It's a great separation that occurs. So there was a brokenness in Edom, Eden as Adam and Eve experienced separation from their creator. So today, instead of a fall from glory or grace, let's, let's think of it as a separation that widens, that broken union. But what does this have to do with idols? Okay, here's, here's what it has to do with idols. Here's, if there's a thesis to this whole series, here you go. Since that separation, we've been trying to return to that wholeness We've been trying to return to that union with God. And anything we settle for in pursuit of that, other than him, is an idol. Anything we settle for in that pursuit, other than him, is counterfeit. Idols are a substitute. They're settling for a lesser love than the source of love. It's when we settle for a lesser love than the source of love of love itself. They're about searching for wholeness and union outside of ourselves and outside of our creator. Because an idol is something we're going to to find that reunification with the wholeness of Eden. This one's on the screen for you, I think. The stuff of idolatry is made of our groping attempts to manufacture wholeness within ourselves based on some other currency than God's love. 
The stuff of idolatry is made up of our groping attempts to manufacture wholeness within ourselves based on some other currency than God's love. Tim Keller puts it like this. Idols will always break your heart because no created thing can bear the freight of your deepest hopes or the weight of your soul's longings. So this is what we mean when we say that idols are counterfeit. They're more than just ancient people bowing down to statues and golden calves. They're more than just me coveting my neighbor's new car. They are counterfeits for the true source of satisfaction and fulfillment and wholeness and union. Idols are a misplaced dependence. Idols are misplaced dependence. And they're all counterfeits for God. So, as I said, we're going to look at some of the stories around the Exodus story of the Hebrews out of Egypt. And that means today we're going to talk about the burning bush episode. So here's a little context. So Moses, uh, a lot of you know this backstory, was born a Hebrew in Egypt, but raised by the Egyptian royalty, right? So he knew the plight of his people. He knows he's a Hebrew, um, but he's raised sort of in the lap of luxury as an Egyptian. But one day he saw an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew brethren of his and kind of lost his cool and kind of definitely killed the Egyptian and then sort of definitely buried the Egyptian to try to cover up the crime. And, uh, but word spread. He found out that people knew and people were talking, so he fled. He fled to the desert where people flee to in Bible times. So um, he went out there and started a whole new life and eventually got married and became a shepherd. And that's where we pick up with Exodus chapter 3, verse 3. I am reading in the ESV, just so you know, if you want to switch your phone over there. So it's word for word, if you want to. All right, three. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not being burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him, called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It's a very common reaction in the Old Testament when people run into, you know, God. Verse 7, the, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, 
And I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So the story of the exodus out of Egypt starts with a gift. But I will be with you. The gift of authentic presence. Moses is given the gift of authentic presence. And this is a radical thing. Today, yeah. But especially then, right? There were really no other monotheistic religions Going around in those days, everybody had a pantheon of gods, right? So most people were accustomed to that idea and that these gods only meddled with human affairs when they felt like it, right? When it suited them or they felt like it, they were in a bad mood or a good mood, they would bless or curse people because they could. But that there is one God and this one God would show up personally, and give the gift of authentic and personal presence to an individual, that a God would go with you, that was something else entirely. You know what stood out to me in this part right here? That he's always been Emmanuel. He's always been Emmanuel. He's always been a with us God. Ever since the beginning, when he walked through the garden with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. He's always been the with us God. And church, when God calls us like this, like he called Moses, that call is always accompanied with the authentic presence. When he calls us, that call is always accompanied by the gift of his presence. The most genuine thing that there is the only place that we can truly source our freedom and belonging and wholeness from. So when we're called to work for justice out there in the city, the call doesn't come without the presence. When we're called to wipe the bottoms of the little ones and to deal with the teenage attitudes, that call comes with the authentic presence. And when we're called to keep a space of grace open for those who would call us their enemy, that call comes with the authentic presence. And the call to yield to one another in the costly and beautiful covenant of marriage, that call comes with the authentic presence. God with us in that. And when we're called to being the church, and embodying the good news of Jesus to one another and to everybody that we meet, that call comes with the presence of Emmanuel, the God that goes with, just like he told Moses.
the personal presence of a good God is the one thing that is not counterfeit. But please hear this. Because that's true, this is true. Because the personal presence of God is the one thing that isn't counterfeit, it is the one thing that we are most likely to forget when things are great or question when we're suffering. Not if you found that to be true. Mm -hmm. Because the personal presence of God is the one thing that is not counterfeit, it's the one thing that we are tempted to forget when things are great or question when we are suffering. And this is why we go to the disordered loves that Augustine was talking about. We try to deal with the separation by being joined with something else. That's an idol. That's counterfeit. So whether we're trying to ignore God or run from God or understand God or despise God, whatever it is, we settle for counterfeits when the truth is that we already have the gift of authentic presence. The presence is not something that we have to go out and find or get to some place of understanding in our minds about. It's only something that we learn to see that it's already true. It's only something that we learn to see that his presence is as close as our next breath. But there's something to learn here, right? To look deeper into. Most of the time, I think, these counterfeits, these loves that are disordered, are good things. Not always, but many times, they're good things. But they're good things that we put our dependence into. Good things that we come to need when I need the success more than anything. When I need to feel the love from another person back more than anything. Good things that we cling to when we don't feel the authentic presence are still counterfeit. But how do we know if we made things even good things into counterfeits. How, how would we know that? Like, water is good for you. We need it. Most people walk around dehydrated most of the time, and they don't even realize it. But did you know that you can drink too much water? Did you know there's a thing called water intoxication? Look it up. Not right now. Keep listening right now. Look it up later. Siri, remind me to look up water intoxication. Okay, there you go. Uh, it's a real thing because too much of anything in your bloodstream will kill you. Yes? Doctor and psychotherapist Alfred Adler says it like this. If you want to know what you're living for, if you want to know what you're living for, what you draw your identity and worth from, if you want to know what you worship, if you want to know what your idol is, you can't just ask yourself that question because we're usually kind of blind to that stuff, right? We usually slide those counterfeit 20s in with the real 20s so we don't have to look at it, so we don't see it, we're not aware. 
But he says, what you can do to find out about your idols is to look at your nightmares. Look at your nightmares. And he's not saying to go to a medium and try to interpret your dreams with those cards and a crystal ball. He's saying, he's saying, what scares you the most to lose? And I would add this. What are you afraid to let go of? Because if you let go of it, that means you would lose it or you wouldn't be in control of it anymore. Which is an illusion, by the way. But we like to think that that's true, right? What would cause you, what could cause you to despise God if you lost it? That's how you know what things you might be depending on. Now, losing those things would and does shake us to our core. Yes, absolutely so. But if we've idolized those things, if we're depending on those things for worth or identity or as a vehicle to somehow bridge the separation between us and God and find the wholeness with our Creator again, if we've idolized those things, then the loss will kill us. Those losses will kill us or convince us that God is the one that's dead. I'm not saying we shouldn't love those things. Of course, we do love those things that we don't want to lose. But remember Augustine's quote, it's about disordered loves. The things that we love are good things, but if they're disordered, they take on the counterfeit role. When our loves are ordered properly, and we have no other God before God, and when we depend on the source of life and love and identity for those things, then here's the secret. We'll love all the other things better. We'll love all the other things better. See, I remember teaching growing up in my faith tradition that painted this picture of God as this jealous ex-boyfriend, right? Get really mad if you have an idol and just wants to smite you because he's jealous and, and petty. This is on screen. When we love and worship God first, we love everything else better. That's the secret. See, that word jealous, he's a jealous God, that's used in the Bible some, right? That's in there. But that doesn't have to mean that he's saying, love nothing else, only me. What it means is when we love him first, when we live connected to the source of love, capital L, love, we love all the other things so much better than before. When we're not depending on all the other people and the things that we love to give what only God can give to us, then we're free to love those things with open hands. We're free to love those things like God loves them. When we have no counterfeits, we love God first. We love all the rest so much better. Moses could have put his trust in a lot of things that day. 
and a lot of things in that in that day. I mean, that's a pretty epic moment. I don't know if, well, I was gonna say, I don't know if you have any more epic days than that. But then fast forward into Moses' life, yes, he had more epic days than that. But still, this is a memorable moment, right? He could have put his trust in a lot of things. He could have he could have idolized the burning bush. Pharaoh, let my people go. Come on, guys, we've got to go back to this bush. So this bush has the secret. He could have idolized that event, that moment. He could have made an idol out of reaching the promised land. He said we're going to go to a land. That's the goal. That's how we get the win is to succeed by getting to the promised land. And he could have idolized that. He could have made an idol out of his understanding of these promises that God made. He could have made an idol out of his understanding, his interpretation of the promises that God had given him and clung to those too. Or he could depend on and go with the one thing that is never counterfeit, the presence of a personal and good God. Okay, so if I haven't convinced you yet, let's read on. Exodus 3, verse 13. <laughs> this is great. This part gets, okay, let's just read it. Verse 13, then Moses said to God, Moses said to God, all right, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses asked God what name he should give if the people of Israel asked for it. It's like a radio ad where you go to buy a mattress. And, Tell them BJ sent you. Um, who should I say sent me, right? And how does God answer, I am who I am? Which, that's an English interpretation. There really is no am in Hebrew. It's probably more like, I will be who I will be. But why does Moses ask that question? Doesn't he know who he's talking to? I mean, Moses was a good Christian, right? He went to Sunday school and especially all the good guys, right? All the good guys in the Bible, they're all good Christians, aren't they? Well, of course not, because that didn't exist yet, did it? The people of Israel have been in Egypt for a really long time. Moses was raised as an Egyptian very likely believing in their whole pantheon of gods. So from that place, it would make sense that Moses was going, um, which, which one am I talking to? 
what should I tell them? Because we don't even know what Moses believes about Jehovah right now. We don't know what he really believes about all the little g-gods. And all the little g-gods have a specialty, right? Fertility or sun or war or the moon or the floods or the everything. So depending on God's answer, Moses could tell his people what this God was capable of, right? Who's making a promise to deliver us? Oh, the guy that's in charge of like springtime? No, that's not going to be enough, right? But God, but Yahweh does not have a specialty because he's capable of it all. And not only does he exist unlike the little g-gods, but here it is. He is being. He is being itself. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And now, this answer that he gives has been studied and hypothesized about for a really, really long time. And there's a lot to it. But here's where we're going with it today. Here's the word. Haya. I know. It sounds like Haya. Which, a lot of people want that to be what God's name is. Smite. Haya. Um... But that's not what this translates to. So, uh, <laughs> to fall out, to come to pass, to become, to be. So this word is used a lot in the Old Testament to mean exactly that. Came to be, come to be, is, becoming, etc. But for the Hebrews, they would use this word in a, in a dynamic sense, not a static one. So, when God is saying, I am who I am, he's saying, I was, I have come to be, am coming to be, and I will come to be. I am the God, the capital G, who has always been and will always be, and who is here now with a personal presence now, in the eternal now, right now. And in that word, Haya, lies the word Yah. And that's the name for Israel's God, right? Short for Y-H-V-H, what we call Jehovah. Do you see that? The word for being is in his name. The name he gave himself. The word for being itself is in his name because presence is who he is. Do you see that? Presence is who he is. He's saying, I am the God who is the God. And he's saying like he did to Moses, but I'll go with you because his presence is an active presence. He's always been the with us God. From Jehovah to Emmanuel. His living and authentic presence is not counterfeit. It is the gift, it is the reality, it is the promise, it is the truth. So, we're going to continue an even deeper dive into this over the next three weeks. Before today, some questions and some things to consider, to ponder, to take with us. So, if presence is who he is, if being is in his name, if he is a with us God, 
if his authentic presence is with you, then where are you with his presence? If he's with you, then where are you with that presence? And if we're searching for God's presence like we do sometimes, or running from God's presence, or questioning God's presence, or denying God's presence, and here's a question. It might be a tough one, but then what are we worshiping? Then what are we worshiping instead? What is it that we're clinging to then? What is it that we're trying to depend on? Our interpretation of his promises, our construct of who he is, of who they said he is, dependence on answers or certainty or validation, because joining with anything else to try to fix the separation from the source is counterfeit. I promise you, my friends, I promise you, the living and breathing and active presence of Jehovah, of Emmanuel, is not counterfeit. He is the source of everything good and true. He's the one who is worthy, the only one who's worthy of our worship and dependence. Ben, you guys can come on back up, and we'll pray. God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just invite you to keep speaking. Yeah, I know that you do that, but I guess I'm asking you to. Draw us into the conversation. I'm asking you to heighten our awareness. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Let us take these questions, these thoughts, these truths. Let's take them with us. Spirit, work these things out in our hearts in our minds and our lives let us wrestle with it let us find you in the questioning and the tension and the honesty spirit teach us to be honest with ourselves so we can be honest with you we can agree with you that you already know what's true about us in our innermost places God we know that you have forgiveness for us that you have so much mercy when we're depending on other things God when we're settling for lesser loves and we know that you're patient you're good you're merciful but God just show us give us the vision to see what we need to see about how and where our loves are disordered Teach us what it's like to depend only on you like you're our very next breath. Day by day, moment by moment. We want to hear from you. We want to see what you're showing us. And we're counting on you to teach us in this conversation, in this series, even now. And what it is that we can let go of to take a hold of you 
take a hold of the source of love itself. We love you back, God.